as an English major back in the day, one of my least favorite eras of literature to read is best represented by Thomas Hardy. Tess of the Dubervilles, anybody read that? Or Jude the Obscure? These are novels where the universe just seems to be out to get the characters. No matter what they do, life turns against them, they descend into despair, it just seems to be fate. These are really depressing books. This is how I feel about Game of Thrones and why I don't watch it. <laughs> seems like everyone's just doomed without redemption, right? Thomas Hardy, I don't know about the writer of Game of Thrones, Thomas Hardy was born an Anglican. But over the course of his life, he loses belief in a powerful being shaping things towards goodness, and his literature reflects that pretty vividly. Now, he's not the only one, because he writes in a time right after Charles Darwin's work has come out. So these concepts of survival of the fittest are in the atmosphere. And there's a real question, is it all just nature red in tooth and claw? Is there any real hope for goodness and justice in a dog-eat-dog -dog world? Well, when we read the book of Judges, it feels a bit like it could have been written by Thomas Hardy or turned into a miniseries on HBO. It is violent, it is bloody, and it just gets worse and worse. The lectionary does not feature it prominently. This is the only time in three years that a text from Judges appears on a Sunday morning. Now, the Daily Office is a little different. You'll get a lot of Judges if you read Daily Office. But on the lectionary, this is it. This is today is the day. And yet, we have today's collect. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us to hear them, read, mark, learn, inwardly digest them, that we may embrace and hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life. What can we learn from the book of Judges? How in the world does Judges help us embrace and hold fast the hope of everlasting life? That is our question for this morning. And because I'm going to cover the whole book of Judges, I have a handout. <laughs> this is not a handout original to me. This is a resource from the Bible Project. You might have seen some of their other, well, you guys need one. Eh, you'll be fine. You're a deacon. You know the book of Judges. Uh, we'll get you one in a second. Um, the Bible Project has these videos and other resources that are really helpful. If you're worshiping from home and you just Google Bible Project Judges poster, you'll find what I'm handing out to those here in person today. So as these are being handed out, and yes, I know they're small. If you get them on your computer, you can make it bigger or watch the video. It's about seven minutes long. So last week, uh, Deacon Ethan in his preaching and the, the text from last week, we heard Joshua command the Israelites or ask the Israelites, will you obey the commands of the Lord as you go into the promised land? Israel said, yes, of course, us and our descendants. What are you worried about, Joshua? Well, Joshua dies and along comes the era of the judges and Israel immediately fails. They fail to keep their word to obey. Judges 1 and 2, this is on the left side of your handout. Israel does not drive out the Canaanites the way that the Lord commanded them to. Now, this is a tough one for us, particularly with the news cycle today, and I will address that a little more later. But for now, hear that the reason for not wanting the Canaanites around the people of Israel is because they were extremely morally corrupt, and they worshiped their gods through child sacrifice. This is 
not a good thing. Yuck. God did not want Israel doing that. They were called to be a holy people who reflected God's character to the nations. So that's what they were supposed to do. But instead, most of Judges shows us Israel in this downward spiraling cycle. So this is in the very bottom left of your handout. It shows this cycle. You might have heard this before. It's even a little bit in our um, passage from today. Israel falls into sin. Again, they do evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then they experience the consequences of sin, which is being oppressed by the nations they hadn't driven out. Then they cry out to the Lord in their distress. The Lord in his mercy sends a deliverer, a judge to deliver them. And then for a while, there's peace. And then it all starts over again. So that's the overall cycle. And for the first few judges, that's basically what happens. The center section in the bottom of your handout has this uh, section of judge, 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 judge. Now, first, what is a judge in judges? It's not a judicial figure like we think of, not like a Supreme Court judge or someone interpreting the law. This is um, a leadership position, kind of like a chieftain or a tribal regional leader. Um, Again, someone who leads, there is a role in handling disputes, just like Moses did. You see Deborah in our passage, she's leading as well as serving God as a prophet. Um, Most of the judges also have a military role as deliverer as well. It's a leadership role. Um, So Deborah calls up Barak as the deliverer. This is a little bit different, but she has authority in her region, Ephraim, under the authority of Yahweh. Because in Judges, Yahweh is the true judge. The Hebrew is a little different. It makes it clear that Yahweh is the judge and other judges or judgers are subordinate to him. Yahweh is, in theory, Israel's true leader and deliverer, just as in theory, he's Israel's king as well. So that's the political structure of Israel right now. A lot of tribes with regional leaders. The judges start off pretty good and then go downhill fast. So Othniel, haven't preached on him ever. He fights off king of Aram. He's a good judge. He gets very little time. Ehud, this is the guy who defeats Eglon, king of Moab, the king that was so large the sword disappears into his gut, right? Every teenage boy's favorite Bible story. Ehud gets a little more time. Deborah, our passage for today. Um, All of their stories follow this cycle pattern of sin, oppression, crying out, deliverance, peace. They follow that pretty well. Although in um, Deborah, the passage, the verses right after where our lectionary stops, we see Barak, the deliverer, starting to show some hesitancy in trusting the word of the Lord. And as a consequence, he doesn't get to kill the bad guy. That honor goes to Jael, who takes a tent peg, a domestic implement, right through the skull of Sisera. Again, this is an HBO material series. So in Deborah, it's starting to go downhill a little bit. We get to Gideon in chapter six, it goes downhill even worse. The cycle pattern shifts. Gideon is even more hesitant to obey the word of the Lord. He tests them with the fleeces, right? He says, if you're gonna be with me, do this to the fleece. And he does that more than once. Well, finally he obeys. The Lord delivers Israel from the Midianites with only 300 men and some clay pots. Then Gideon uses the gold he wins to make an idol. In his lifetime, 
he draws Israel back into idolatrous worship. There's no period of peace after Gideon. It's starting to go downhill. Jephthah gets even worse. The Bible project calls Jephthah a mafia thug living up in the hills. He's a strong man. Israel's elders beg him to deliver them from the Ammonites, but it is clear Jephthah does not know the character of the Lord. He treats Yahweh as if he was a Canaanite god and vows to sacrifice his daughter if Yahweh gives him victory. That's treating Yahweh like a Canaanite god. Jephthah wins the victory, and he sacrifices his daughter. You can see on your handout this phrase that captures this, this part. Israel no longer knows the character of their own god. And then we get to the bottom, or almost the bottom, Samson. Samson is not a hero. In the Samson story, Israel is not even crying out to Yahweh for deliverance. There's no repentance. Samson, even though he's set aside as a Nazarite, he doesn't show any regard for Yahweh or the law. He kind of does whatever he wants. He's violent. He sleeps around. He's prideful. Eventually, he does destroy his enemies, but he destroys himself as well. It's this picture of Israel's self-destruction under the weight of their sin. So by the end of Judges, this is the bottom right on your handout, Israel looks no different from their Canaanite neighbors. They are violent and out of touch with the character of Yahweh. There's sexual violence. They're killing each other. It is a mess. So much for the promised land. As the Bible Project reminds us, at the end of Judges, Israel needs to be delivered from themselves. And Judges ends with these words. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. The end. What are we supposed to do with that? Other than don't do that. What are we to read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest from the book of Judges? I think I have three points. <laughs> I forgot to write down how many. I think it's three. First, Judges reminds us of the utter destructiveness of sin. Sin and evil are not just oopsies. They are corrosive and contagious. And that is why the Bible takes sin so seriously. It's bad for us. Doing what is right in our own eyes leads us to an ending like we see in the book of Judges. In my mind, that is the only way to make some sense of the amount of violence we read about in the Old Testament. It is usually a consequence of sin. Now, that being said, the violence makes us uncomfortable, and rightly so. It is not the way it's supposed to be. I think uh, at some point I need to preach a little more on this because I'm wrestling with it myself. You probably are too. But I want to make a few points this morning. It may not satisfy everything, but a couple of things to keep in mind as we think about violence in the Old Testament and especially in Joshua and Judges. One of the most difficult what-do-we-do-with-this concepts in this section of Scripture is the concept of harem. You might have heard that uh, word before, H-E-R-E-M. It's a little hard to translate. It's the concept that the people of Israel coming into the land were supposed to totally get rid of, destroy, 
Canaanite objects, livestock, and people of all ages. It's often translated totally destroy. I think something like remove from circulation, get rid of. Uh, it's a ritual category, kind of like clean and unclean. Something that was harem was considered dangerously contagious. Sort of like if you have a mattress with bed bugs. You don't want the bed bugs to spread, get rid of it. Well, with a mattress, that's one thing. With people, that's very much harder for us, right? Harem was not a concept unique to Israel. This was uh, a concept many other nations practiced it as well. So I think this is in the category of this was the culture. How do we understand how God works with this culture and this concept? The spiritual principles are clear. Physical principle, still not clear to me. Spiritually, here's what this is pointing towards. First is that God judges sin. God judges sin in the nations and in his people. God told Abraham when he was standing in the promised land and God was saying, all of this, your people will fill this land someday. Hundreds of years before, he told Abraham that. And he told Abraham he was being patient with the Canaanites first. So they had 400 years or more. They had hundreds of years of God's mercy before God's judgment on their sin. Child sacrifice is worthy of judgment. I still don't like it. God judges sin in his people, too. In the cycle in Judges, Israel experiences oppression, um, you know, warfare, violence, all this stuff. He ex they experience oppression as a result of their sin. It's almost like that's a natural consequence of sin. You want to do this stuff? Okay, go ahead and experience what sin does to human life. The wages of sin is death. God judges sin. The other spiritual principle that Haram points to is that God calls God's people to be holy, utterly distinct as he is distinct. Not merging, not uh, synthesizing with the worship of the nations, but showing them God's character, staying contained as God's holy people. In the Old Testament, again, sometimes there's things that, are, that show up as physical principles but point to spiritual principles. And yet, Judges is also clear, deliverance from enemies out there, destroying enemies out there, that does not get rid of sin. Israel could have done all of that and still ended up in destruction because the enemy is within. Sin is the enemy. Judges reminds us that God takes sin very seriously, not because he's mean or vindictive, but because sin corrupts and destroys everything and everyone it touches. Sin left unchecked leads to an end like Samson, total destruction of self and others. And it leads to an end like the book of Judges, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes and often the most vulnerable being destroyed as a result. Sometimes mercy might actually look like stopping sin and evil from continuing to destroy. Judges reminds us sin is utterly destructive. Now, at the same time, point two, Judges teaches us to long for a king who will break the cycle of sin once and for all. We are not supposed to read the book of Judges and glory in the violence. 
And the lesson of the book of Judges is absolutely not protect the nation, destroy the foreigner. That is not the message. When we read Judges, we feel despair. And that is the whole point. Israel completely degenerates into awfulness. That's how I feel whenever I try to open up my news right now and process what's happening in the Middle East. This is literally cycles of violence. More violence trying to end violence. More violence in response to that violence trying to end violence. And the most vulnerable getting destroyed along the way. Violence begets violence. It becomes harder and harder to know how in the world to stop it. When any of us feel wrong or when we have been wronged, we can be tempted toward violence, whether physical violence or more of the, my cause is right, so anything I do toward my cause is okay approach. I think our, the church in general faces this temptation right now. But Judges reminds us that bad things happen when we lose sight of the character of our God. That's part of what happens in this tricky parable for us today too. That third servant loses sight of the character of the master and he makes bad decisions accordingly. Whatever we make of the violence recorded in the Old Testament, which again, I know that I'm not answering all the questions about that this morning. It's worthy of attention in future sermons. Whatever we make of it, scripture is very clear that an ethnically pure kingdom of Israel was not God's ultimate end game. Jesus was. Jesus turns the cycle of sin and violence on its head. He does not come in and harem the Romans out of Israel, nor destroy all the unfaithful Israelites who were kind of in bed with the Romans. He doesn't do that. Jesus takes violence on himself and responds not with more violence, but with resurrection. He takes on himself the punishment of sin. He came to be the prince of peace who ends sin's cycle of destruction. He sends the Holy Spirit to put to death not the people who don't believe in him, but the things in us that are destructive. In the kingdom of God, those who are blessed are not the warriors, but the peacemakers. Not the strong, but the weak. Not those who take up the sword or the gun but those who lay it down, even at great cost. How is it that God can both judge sin and end cycles, end cycles of sin and violence? Because he himself took on the punishment of sin and death. Jesus Christ broke the cycle. Thanks be to God. Judges, the despair in judges teaches us to long for that king, to long for that end to the cycle for the true righteousness that restores and heals, for a justice that does not lead to vengeance, but to restoration, to long for our true and cycle-breaking king. And last, third, Judges teaches us that when God's leaders fail, the consequences are devastating. And yet, even so, all is not lost. Why did God use these crazy judges like Jephthah or Samson? 
The implication in Judges is that that was the best available for the job. That is how badly Israel had degenerated. That's what God had to work with. It does not mean that God chose Jephthah because he approved of Jephthah sacrificing his daughter. No. It does not mean that God chose Samson because he approves of Samson's violence or promiscuity. No. This was the best he had to work with to preserve God's people, to carry forward his promise. These leaders do not get a free pass. Their failures of leadership were devastating for the people of Israel. They led them into idolatry, morally repugnant acts. They led them away from the Lord into violence. They left Israel out of touch with who God is. God judges morally corrupt leaders and holds them responsible for their sin and for the ways that their sin and failure causes disproportionate harm to God's people. That ought to really sober up anyone wearing this today. But even though leaders fail, and Judges teaches us they do, even though they fail, all is not lost because God remains faithful. God remains faithful to deliver his people from oppression time after time, to give them lots of chances to repent, to preserve a faithful remnant, even through exile. God remains faithful to carry forward his plan to break the cycle once and for all through the Son. God remains faithful to call forward unexpected heroes, like J.L., the woman with the tent peg. She was a woman. She was not even an Israelite. She was sort of the real hero of that story. Or Ruth. The story of Ruth takes place in this same time period of the judges. Ruth, as you might remember, also a woman and a Moabite woman, not a person of the people of God. And yet her character reflects the covenant love of Yahweh more than the rest of Israel combined. In the middle of this awful period of the judges, where everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Ruth emerges and is faithful and gives birth to Obed, father of Jesse, father of David, and so on and so on until we get to Jesus Messiah, son of David, son of God. God remains faithful through the unexpected. So judges, in the context of scripture as a whole, can encourage us. Don't let the horrible failures of those leading God's people distract you from the total faithfulness of God. Leaders ruled by sin cause destruction. God will judge them, us, too. And God will remain faithful to God's people. He is faithful even now. Next week is Christ the King Sunday because Jesus is the King that judges teaches us to long for. Jesus is the King that judges teaches us to long for. He breaks the power of sin and death. He's full of mercy and yet does not allow evil to triumph. As Advent approaches, may the despair we feel in the book of Judges, in our news cycles, in 
all of these things that seem so hard for light to break through, may that despair teach us to look for the King and long for his arrival in our hearts, in our world, and at the last day. We do have hope. His name is Jesus. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, I offer this to you, O Lord. Amen.